Welcome to the God Reports Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca. And I'm Sam. We love stories that describe the powerful ways God is at work. As a little girl, I would listen to old stories of missionaries on cassette tapes. I could still recite every single word to you. When my father-in-law gave us access to the God Report's massive collection of raw telephone interviews, it really felt like discovering a hidden treasure. Yeah, every Friday I would get together with my dad, who is Mark Ellis, the writer for God Reports. Over a cup of coffee, an omelet, and some bacon, he would tell me about interviews with people from all over the world. I loved listening to my dad retell these stories about Jesus showing up in people's lives. They not only challenged me to trust him, but to also follow his lead in my life. We are so excited to share our discoveries. Our faith has been encouraged and we know yours will be too. Today's story is an interview by lead journalist Mark Ellis with Karen Dunham. Karen had a turbulent youth that involved abuse, drugs, foster homes, abortions, and eventually prison. After her incarceration, she managed to turn her life around until she stumbled into a corruption scandal that nearly took her life. We pick up the interview at Karen's darkest moment. We hope that you are as excited as we are to see how God turned her life around. Enjoy this interview from 2012. I knew I was going to hell. Mm. I thought, okay, I'm going to die and go to hell. This game is about over. And uh, my sister-in-law had showed up not long after that and said, would you like to come and stay the night at my house? And I thought, you know, I don't have anything to lose. They're going to kill me any moment. You know, mm-hmm. any moment I'm dead. And I just really felt like any time I was either going to be, you know, something. I mean, these big men would be outside the back door. Um, I was walking around with two loaded pistols that my Christian brother had given me. And just, I mean, and gas coming out of our air vents. I mean, all these things were happening. And I thought, they're going to, you know, they're just going to get me. They're going to kill me. And so finally when I got to my, I told my sister, okay, we're coming to your house for the night. And she asked me, have you ever considered, you know, asking Jesus Christ to help you? And I said, never. And she said, well, I think he would help you. I said, great. And she said, but the only way to really get him to help you is to get on your knees and ask him to come into your heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so me and my son, I mean, it was almost like, like almost instant. We're on our knees, right? Yeah. And we're just on the floor with our hands, you know, on the couch. And she's telling us how to pray. I mean, that's how terrified we were. But as soon as we asked him into our heart, I mean, that was it things began to change. Yes. And did you really even understand what you were doing at that moment? Not too much. But she said, do you want to go to church? I said, sure. Mm. And I felt a peace come, come in, into me. I felt a peace. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is weird. Because, and I really, I'll tell you, like, I don't know if I put it in my book, but I almost was having a withdrawal because 
being terrorized, I had so many adrenaline rushes, and I was a very addictive person. Mm. Not that I was ever addictive on drugs, but I just did drugs. I enjoyed drugs. I enjoyed wine. I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed everything the world had to offer. And so when all of a sudden we got Jesus in, and I'm not buzzing off the being afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, wow, I kind of, my teeth aren't rattling anymore. What happened to it? You know? And so it was, it was a, an immediate response. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, it just came, it came all through me. Yeah. And in a very short time, he began to appear to me and speak to me. And I just, you know, I'm in this wild, wonderful, radical love relationship with the Lord that, you know, he's never taken me back out of his bridal chamber. I'm just, you know, so blessed to still be living in that place with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents wanted to put me in the mental institution. Oh, boy. Because they thought I had went crazy. Hmm. And they, um, we, I already had a schizophrenic brother, and they were saying, you know, we just <clears throat> hate to lose another child to schizophrenia. And I kept saying, you know, look, I found Jesus. You know, he found me. I didn't know really anything about how it all worked. Mm-hmm. But I did know that I was connected with Jesus. And my family were, like, flipped out. I mean, they never flipped out when I was doing wild parties in prison. You know, everything's normal. And then you go home and you say, Jesus Christ, that's it. Isn't Everybody that something? goes wild. Isn't that something? I thought, wow, when I was working for the devil, you guys never said a word. (laughs) Here I am, you know, going to be, I mean, I was just on board with Jesus. He said he needed a servant. I mean, I was just going to serve him with everything I had. Mm -hmm. And my mother kept saying, I want the old Karen back. Mm. You know, for sure the angels were singing, she's never coming back. So it was pretty, it was a radical, radical, life-changing experience. But at 9-11, I mean, everything changed. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up in a Palestinian refugee camp. I don't know if you've ever visited Jericho. It's the lowest city in the world. It's, um, writers called it a squalid Islamic city. Yeah. (laughs) And so when I went in there... How did you end up there? Well, I was in Jerusalem. And some priest said, if you go to Jericho and feed the people, you can win the whole city for Jesus Christ. Ah. And when the priest said it, the Spirit of God gripped me. I mean, just absolutely, like, grabbed me by the <laughs> collar almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you hear that? Go win the whole city. And I thought, oh. My son said, not Jericho. You know. Mm. It, it, I mean, it's hot. It's extremely hot. And it could be one of the lowest, even according to world maps, it's one of the lowest regions in the world. So, I mean, this is like the bottom of the bottom. Killing scorpions, going without water, you know, living in an Islamic Palestinian refugee camp. I mean, it was wild. They blew up my car. They started my house on fire so many times. Wow. So many times that people in the city wouldn't even rent to me anymore. Because they said I had too many fire problems. Well, you know, that's kind of an interesting parallel to when you were being attacked by the mafia. Now you're I being... I kind of felt like it was the same thing. Right. I and thought, I, what is this? 
I mean, they're you know, both if, satanic. If everyone wants satanic. to kill you, and then Jesus says, you, I want you to die, you know, the Lord wants you to die. Mafia wants to kill you, and then I go to the Palestinian refugee camp, they all want to kill me. <laughs> and I just thought, this is like wild. Everybody wants me to die. <laughs> well, they were both satanically driven, you would have to say. So it's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, at this time, though, now you're suffering for Christ. Yeah. And you know what? Truthfully, I thought you guys are going to have to get a lot better in this to get me to leave. Hmm. You know, because I had all that terror from the mafia. Yeah. So this was like kid stuff. Okay, so they started our house on fire. I never made a big deal about it. Isn't that something? Just kept praying. And I'd call the Israeli army Mm -hmm. who made a file on it. And, uh, you know, we get Christians from Jerusalem. In fact, there's a girl here now um, that's working for me that was with, some of, uh, with me in some of our house fires. So, yeah, and there's people around that have come back to visit. But usually when the fire hit, most of them would disappear. Like the next morning, phew, they'd be back on their way back to the United States or, you know, they'd be on their way back to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, Jer- is Jericho to some extent are still under control by the Israelis, or, or have they... No, no, it's, um, Jericho is a Palestinian city. Okay. But since then, I mean, now we have 22 home churches running in the city. Um, the, the checkpoint's gone, the walls are gone, tears fallen. It's still a Palestinian city, um, but the people come in and go out. When I was there, I mean, it was walled off, and it took hours to get somebody in to visit us. I mean, there was terrorists all over the place. And they attribute it to the church, to the fall of terrorism in the city of Jericho. I Isn't mean, we, that we, something? Yeah. Well, who is, is uh, we, it? Is it Fatah or Palestinian Authority? Uh, it's, or? Fatah, it's Fatah, the Palestinian Authority. But the ones that gave the church the credit for the fall of terror was the Israeli army. And I've been working with, as a liaison officers with the Israeli army since 2003. I mean, when I first went into Jericho, I mean, think about this. It was so lonely. I mean, my Christian, the few little Christian friends I had said, how can you be such a traitor to go feed Palestinian terrorists, you know? And so it was like taking a call to the lepers. They didn't invite me to Christmas. They, I mean, when I walked into a place up here in Jerusalem, they'd all kind of stare at me like, you know, like, what's wrong with you, you know? Why are you with the Palestinians? So it was a really lonely deal. But the Israeli army, praise God, God used them. I mean, they told me how proud they were of me. And in the fires, I'd bring them pictures, and they'd say, wow, what's your next plan? And I'd say, I'm not leaving. And, and they would encourage me to continue to fight, to con- continue to do the work. I mean, they were the biggest encouragement, really, I had. So, so they were in control at that point. That was before they gave up control? They didn't give up control. They just moved their checkpoint out of the front door. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, okay. what year did you arrive there in Jericho? I arrived there in 2003. Arrived in 2003. So at that point, there was a big wall surrounding 
Not a wall, um, soldiers, checkpoints. Okay, okay checkpoints. They had checkpoints, right. On the roads, they had rocks on the roads to the back of the city, big boulders so nobody could drive down the road. In the front of the city, they had Israeli soldiers, so nobody was going into the city through the front door unless you went through Israeli army. Okay, so, and, then, and then when did things change? Well, things begin to change um, as the church began to grow. I would, I'm trying to think what year it was. Um, I'm not very good at this. I usually have to look at old emails or my diary and my book. I purposely didn't put like a lot of dates in there just because it's a little rough on me. But we noticed things begin to change. My last huge fire, I had this, I was in the refugee camp. And they took a hundred of my chairs that we used, and our church was outside because a hundred people wouldn't fit inside our house. Yeah. And they, they sat on the walls, and our church was growing so big. And so they took the chairs, and they laid them up against the house, and they made this very, very large firebomb with Molotov gasoline, and it came through. I mean, we had shields. We had every kind of protection you could think of on our windows. And it came through, and the fire was so hot when it blew through, every window blew out in the house, and the air inside the air conditioning, they're on the walls, the air conditioners melted, and the refrigerator melted. I mean, it was a really hot fire. Wow. And when I Where were you? I was inside. I was always inside. Wow, while this always fire was inside. burning? Always, always. Every fire. We were inside, always. The only one that we were, you know, were missed was outside when they turned my car into sticks. Wow. So, so you heard them starting this attack? Yeah, we heard, well, I heard Thomas say, fire! Wait, who's Thomas? I, that Thomas was one of my volunteers. Huh. And he screamed, fire! And so then he'd run out the door, and then I'd go out the door, and outside we'd just, you know, we'd just start blessing the Lord. We'd just start saying, God, we thank you. We've been found worthy to suffer for the gospel. And it was amazing. Um, police officers would ask for Bibles. And, I mean, I really feel the fire God was breaking out. So you escaped. And, when the fire started, you ran out of the house. We always, yeah, you had to. Yeah. We had to, yeah. Okay. And so we so, always got out. One time we were stuck on a roof because they had, uh, there was fire in the doorways and up the stairs and windows were blowing out, so we had to go to the roof. Hmm. And well, then they cut the water off. They wouldn't let anybody put the fire out. So I would have my phone and I'd call the Israeli army and I'd say, we're on fire again. Mm-hmm. And they would call the Palestinians, and they would say, if you don't bring somebody to put the fire out, you're never going to see a tourist in this city again. I mean, they would scream at the Palestinians. Because hmm. I'd tell them, you know, there's no water, we're on the roof. I knew the Lord said, this is going to be your last, your last fire. Huh. And I knew the fires were over. Huh. And uh, But nobody would rent to me, so I had to live in this building with no windows, all black walls, all your furniture burn up. I had to live there for weeks because everybody was afraid to rent me another place. And that's when the Lord told me, go start a church. 
go rent a wedding hall. He told me to go buy this big wedding hall and rent and make a public church. Hmm. And I really think that the Muslim extremes were just so shocked that I would do such a, you know, kind of an obnoxious thing that they, it just blew them away. Yeah. Well, right now you say you're doing home churches? Mm-hmm. I mean, that almost seems... Uh, very successful. Seems very, like a, a possibly... Very heavy, oh yeah, very heavy discipleship. I rented the wedding hall... And I went next door, and I had this big wedding hall, and I was doing, I almost call it a platform ministry. If mm-hmm. you came into town, <clears throat> you could come to the wedding hall, and you could see, you know, 300 Muslims in their veils, all at different levels, being discipled, lifting their hands, saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the Lord said to me, you know, you're building a platform ministry. But he said, a lot of your children aren't going to be in the throne of grace with you. And he says, they need discipleship. So we tore it apart and we said, okay, no more platforms. If you want to come and you want to see what we're doing, you can go with our pastors to the home churches and take a look. Because I actually had tour buses coming from around the world just to see what God was doing in Jericho with Mm -hmm. these Muslim converts. Mm -hmm. Now... If you want to see, you can come and I'll say, okay, I'll find out if they're going the river to baptize any of them. You can go to any of the home churches with them. But now we can't get like two tour buses. Now we got to do like a little bit smaller. Yeah. But the Lord told me, you know, are you working for the people coming to visit or are you working for your children to be discipled? Yes. You've got to keep the priorities straight. I know, and all of a sudden I understood on these big churches, I I could all of a sudden say, wow, now I understand. I understand how God sees some of this stuff. Nothing against big churches, but, you know, some people say, wow, you know, I'm in such a big church, I never, you know, I need prayer. I mean, there's nobody I can sit with. It's like, go in, go out, you know. Mm -hmm. And so now I see the beauty of the book of Acts and the apostolic churches, the home churches. Well, that's what I wonder. If, if you build a larger church, it seems like they'll try to burn it down, whereas if you use the house church uh, strategy that's been used in China and other places with the underground church, it might actually be more strategically effective uh, than trying to raise all that money and build a structure that they will, will become a focal point for their uh, attack. What we what we know about, like, at Green uh, Valley, the years we were there, we didn't have any attacks from the Muslims. Uh-huh. We call it intercultural exchange. I see. Yeah. So you didn't yeah, call it a we, church? No. It, we called ourselves a church, mm-hmm. Living Bread International Church, and we'd say, yes, we just want to thank you for coming and having church with us tonight. And now we want to introduce you with a group from China, whatever. But to the leaders, I would call it an intercultural exchange. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, and so if we make a place for them, it'll be a place where they can pray, a place where they can hang out together, a place where they can do English classes. Mm-hmm. If you don't put English classes and babysitting or something in there, for sure they'll burn it down. But we've been around them long enough. I think we could put a structure there and honor the Lord and give them something to call their own. Yeah. You know, they all say, we, you know, we just want to go sit in a church. Can you take us to Bethlehem? 
I hate to run them all over to the, you know, Catholic or Orthodox Church over there because they want the experience of sitting in a church. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's like a big deal for them. Hmm. Yeah, see, they got the mosque, you know what I mean? They, they yeah. can go there and pray, and they just want a place where they can pray. Yeah. And so it's, it's really kind of important to them. So I'm sure God's going to give them some kind of open heaven, uh, wonderful platform. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that God will do it. Yeah. So you, would you say there are about 100 that have Mormon converts, Mormon, Muslim converts uh, that you are ministering to? Yeah, I'd say hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah, I'd say hundreds. Okay. And how have most of them... That we have ministered to. That we have ministered to. How how would you say most of them have come to know Jesus? Um, Dreams and visions and uh, uh, just encounters. All the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Nothing of... No good teaching. No, uh, you know, radical moves that we no great ideas from us all of it the holy spirit i mean i'm sitting there teaching a couple guys forgiveness the spirit of god falls on them and one of the guys starts praying in tongues he said english i know and arabic i know but what's this Mm. and i thought wow we're talking about forgiveness and i said well that's the spirit of god falling on you giving you a a tongue language you know i mean it's just it's amazing it's all been by the spirit of god I mean, we would just be in sin if we said anything was anything of us. I mean, he's given them dreams, visions. He spoke to them in voices. I mean, he's, you know, just everything you can think of, the Spirit's done to bring the people to us with good questions. Yeah. Right now, I am discipling Islamic Jihad. Really? In Islamic Jihad, I have an office in Gaza. I have one in Jerusalem, Jericho, and Gaza. And I have a military clearance because the Israeli army lets me go anywhere in this country, okay, that I want to go. And uh, I had a translator in Gaza who his family is Islamic Jihad. And um, so I've been working with him for two years in a pilot case, and he's now a converted Christian. Wow. I flew I flew him to Turkey and what I did is I spent some time with him and asked him everything about Islamic jihad, not everything. What's the social structure? How do they get married? Who makes the decisions? What's the chief in the family like? And I really gathered, you know, quite a bit of notes. And uh, because I feel that we can beat terror with Christian principles by converting Muslim terrorists to uh, Christianity. Hmm. And the one thing I love about them is they're radical. I mean, they're just radical. They're ready to die. They don't, I mean, they're just, now they're ready to die for Jesus. So I love, I love working with uh, radical Islam. And so that's what I'm doing in Jericho right now. So we fly the guy to Turkey and we've done workshops with him. Now they're ready to sit with Israelis. So I have some Israeli soldiers that I worked with that are out of the army now that want to fly and be part of our workshop. So we'll have Palestinians, Gaza school teachers. In Gaza, we're targeting school teachers that are out of the Islamic Jihad family. So um, they're on the Fatah payroll. So they're not Hamas, but Islamic Jihad's worse than Hamas. And uh, so anyway, now they're ready for the Israeli connection. 
And uh, so we've been doing this, doing these uh, workshops, getting them visas to come to Jerusalem from the West Bank. And so now we want to take Gaza the next step further. And so what I did is I got invited to speak in a United States military school mm-hmm. in Monterey. Okay. It's the Naval Postgraduate Academy, or not academy, college. It's in Monterey. It's a Naval in California? Postgraduate. Yeah, Monterey, California. Mm-hmm. So I went to California, and I did a... PowerPoint on how to fight terrorism. Wow. Because we're having success in the West Bank, and they know it. The Army's already sent me, they've already sent somebody over to survey our organization, and they've already sent somebody over here to do a report on why we're having success with the Palestinians. Isn't that great? It was great. So I got to do a little bit of church and state. I got to say, listen, you lose because you won't talk about God. I said, no matter how educated these people are, at the end of the day, they want to be a suicide bomber for their God. So until you go and you're willing to discuss a bigger God, you've lost the battle. So I was able to release that. The Army was so impressed. It was actually the Navy postgraduate school, but there was also Army officers there. They were so impressed. They sent me an email and said they found a million two hundred thousand in a grant to help mitigate conflict mitigation. They said, would you like to partner with us? So all kinds of doors are opening up now. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is amazing. And so now we're being used as a pioneer to to open up doors. And my big dream is that they will acknowledge the missionaries on the ground because a lot of lives could be saved if our army would just meet with the missionaries and sit with them and learn about the culture before they go in there and just lose a bunch of lives. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I've worked with the Israeli army for 10 years, so I know how it's done. And also, the greatest thing that's happened with our ministry right now is from Kalia Kibbutz, this is one of the soldiers there, his name is Rodem. He brings a delegation. I worked with him five years while I was in Jericho. He was one of the liaison officers there. Mm-hmm. And he, wrote, he actually wrote me a letter of recommendation with an Israeli army letterhead. And so what happened is he's, he went to three years, um, what do you call it, the college um, music school, Hollywood music school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then he goes back to the kibbutz, and his family tells him about six months ago, They said, listen, we're just going to go to war. They said, we have to know how to make peace with our Jericho neighbors. And Rodham says, I've got a friend of mine who I worked with in the army that could do the peace talks for you. And he lives at the kibbutz. So this is like wild. They come and ask me if I would represent them on peace talks with the Palestinians in Jericho. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and so we, we, we started with a woman's luncheon, and we're going to put music together, kids with music. We're going to put youth together. And my ultimate goal is 
families, just a whole bunch of families together, father, son, kids, husband, wife. So we're just working towards it on a grassroots movement. And once this catches a momentum, then I'll go to the next kibbutz and grab the next Arab city. <laughs> it's wonderful what's happening. I got a story for you. Let me tell you one more real quick one. Yeah. This is about Galat Shalit. Remember the soldier that was kidnapped? That just came out, they traded a 1,000 prisoners for? Oh, yeah. Okay. What happened is, all right, this is how God's using our gifting. You're going to love this. I'm in Gaza, and I'm meeting with uh, Aladdin. His name is Allah Hodge, my convert. And he is, Hodge is one of the biggest terrorist names in the Middle East. And the Israeli army and the United States army is so impressed that I'm in this household. Mm. I, I mean, this is really, really, like, they're more impressed than I am because I, I guess I don't realize how nasty this household is, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but, um, and, you know, our motives are a little different. But anyway, I'm in Gaza, and I'm walking down the street with my son. Now, picture this. There's the U.N. headquarters on the corner of the street. Across, on the, on the right-hand side, is U.N., Mm -hmm. On the left-hand side is a mosque. In front of the mosque, just south, is the Islamic University. And we're standing there in between the UN and the mosque. And I say to my, my son looks at me and says, Mom, is that Israeli soldier around here? And I look at my son and our hair stands up on our head, neck, everywhere. I said, Son... I said, he's sitting underneath the U.N. headquarters in Gaza Strip. Hmm. And I said, what Hamas had done, they had either used the mosque or the Islamic University, and they had tunneled underneath the street, and that's where they were keeping Galat Shalit. And it was about seven months later, they traded a 1,000 prisoners and brought them out. So you kind of discovered where he was and yes. alerted them? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Through the prophetic anointing. And I want to encourage people, use your gifting. This is the season for things like this. Yeah. Use your gifting. Don't be afraid. If God shows you, you know, there's some kid hidden in an abandoned building, go to the police. I mean, God's never going to chastise you for thinking you heard from God. Right. Well, was he really visible? I mean, was he visible? Was he in the open? No, no. He was under the building, under U.N. headquarters. Listen, in the game of war, you cannot bomb anywhere around U.N., an Islamic mosque, an Islamic college, all off limits yeah. for the games of war. And that's where they had tunneled underneath. He was underneath in a tunnel. And, it, and, and the Lord gave that to your son. The Lord, yeah, my son, gave it to my son, and when my son said it to me, immediately I saw him under the building. So wow. went to the army. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. We knew he was there. So after they brought him out, you know, I go to the disciples and different people in, in Gaza. I said, okay, guys. They brought the soldier out. I told you guys that he was underneath the U.N. building. I told them, too, because I wanted them to give me more information. And they just laughed. They said everybody knew, everybody knows that Hamas has an underground city in Gaza. Hmm. 
Hmm. So, I mean, I've been to the tunnels. There's pictures of the tunnels in my book. Hmm. They have super tunnels. They bring wives through the tunnels. They bring, you know, produce. They bring all kinds of stuff. But Hamas, think about it. There's no way Israel could have went in there and took that soldier without losing the life of soldier. That's the ultimate missionary call or to those hot spots in the, in the world. It's a lonely call out there, but I tell you what, glory of God's all over it. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, this has really been wonderful to speak with you, and I just wish you more of God's favor and blessing and uh, him to continue to open the doors for you to uh, give people the, the love, grace, and truth of our Lord. Thanks for listening to this amazing interview. We hope you got encouraged. Head over to GodReports.com to find more exciting stories on what God is doing around the world.